0: Chapter 4 of Mormonism and Masonry by Samuel Goodwin This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto Chapter 4 of Mormonism and Masonry by Samuel Goodwin This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto From a different angle, some of the significant teachings of Mormonism under any circumstances great care should be exercised in the selection of material for membership in masonic lodges this holds true everywhere and at all times and is a duty that in an especial sense devolves upon those who in a representative capacity first pass upon the qualifications of applicants for our mysteries in utah a number of reasons for this might be given some of which it is the purpose of this chapter to set forth In a general way, it may be said that the historic, well-known, and consistent position held by the craft of this jurisdiction, practically, from the very inception of organized masonry, back in 65, to the present time furnishes one reason for caution on the part of Utah investigating committees. Further, there is a noticeable tendency on the part of some of who are young in masonry And of others who, though older, are inclined to be lenient toward a relaxation of requirements, to take account only of the superficial, and to base their conclusions upon an imperfect apprehension of facts which cannot be ignored with safety. In what follows, attention is directed to certain facts no one of which, perhaps taken alone, may seem to be of any great consequence, but which in the aggregate are worthy of serious consideration. In seeking to attain the object in view, we may pass boundaries which somehow have acquired a pseudo-sanctity, and find ourselves in fields too rarely entered by those who, for the time being, are charged with the duty of guarding well our outer portals. That there may be no uncertainty as to what is here undertaken, it may be stated that we are dealing with the general subject of Mormonism and Masonry. And that the particular phase of the subject upon which we now enter relates itself to any would-be applicant who at the same time is a member of the latter-day saint organization. Masonry requires of its initiates, among other things, that they shall come of their own free will and accord. By implication, principle, and teaching, it assumes that those who come into its fellowship are and will remain free from any influence or agency that might interfere with the performance of such duties as may devolve upon them. With this in view, the petitioner is required to declare that he is not a member of any organization whose rules are incompatible with membership in the fraternity. This is not done in criticism of any organization that curtails a freedom of thought or action of its adherence. Such criticism does not lie within the province of masonry but masonry like any other organization does claim and exercise the right to erect such standards as may seem to be necessary to fix upon and apply tests to pass upon the qualifications of would-be members and to decide in any and every case whether the requirements can be or have been satisfactorily met in the exercise of these as of all other functions masonry is a law unto itself with the ground thus clear we may proceed to the consideration of certain facts The bearing and significance of which can hardly be mistaken. If we do not mistake the meaning of the words of those who are authorized to speak, the LDS organization makes such demands upon those who accept its principles and leadership as to produce results which do not accord with the genius of Freemasonry. For example, great stress is laid upon the authority and power of the priesthood. We are told that a man may not honestly differ from the presiding priesthood, without being guilty of apostasy and subject to excommunication this principle was declared in no uncertain phrase by brigham young and george q cannon and in effect it has frequently been set forth since said cannon on one occasion when brigham young was present it is apostasy to differ honestly with the measures of the president a man may be honest even in hell and president wells on the same occasion declared in no less unmistakable terms that one might as well ask the question whether a man had the right to differ honestly with the Almighty. Presumably, these rather startling assertions rest upon the doctrine frequently promulgated that the President of the Church is the very mouthpiece of God, his Visigurant on earth, and the sole channel through which he communicates his will and purpose concerning all that pertains to his kingdom on earth illustrations of the practical application of the principle under consideration are not wanting and those furnish convincing proof of the vitality of the doctrine w s godby and his colleagues were cut off from the church because they presumed to deny the right of brigham young to restrict freedom of thought and speech or to discipline them for opinion's sake and because they did not accept his financial policy moses thatcher held opinions concerning his rights and privileges as an american citizen which did not accord with those of the first presidency and the other members of the quorum of apostles and he declined to take counsel and was disfellowshipped for his temerity smore white felt that the president of the church should not enter the commercial field in competition with persons less highly placed and he gave voice to his opinion to his bishop and was cut off from the church B. H. Roberts, noting an unmistakable partiality in the application of the church rule in the interest of one political party and against the other, entered politics without the approval of the church authorities and was made to feel the sting of their displeasure, but later was reconciled with his brethren. Roberts, who is perhaps the brainiest man in the church, as he is the most independent thinker and most prolific writer, recently gave frank expression in a conference address to his belief that the mormon people had not always been blameless that their conduct had not always been defensible that on the part of some individuals a narrowness and fanaticism and bigotry and unwisdom had been exhibited that the disasters which overtook the followers of the prophet in missouri were due in part at least to boastfulness overzeal fanaticism and unwisdom on the part of the people and that in his early experience even the prophet Joseph Smith made his mistakes and was several times reproved of the Lord because of them. For this frank avowal of facts of the truth of which his historical studies had convinced him, he was taken sharply to task in the same session of the conference by the president of the church, Joseph F. Smith. Such results, as are here indicated, need occasion no surprise, for it must be remembered that the authorities, the priesthood, are in very deed a part of god and as such they can fix irrevocably the ultimate status of man for to them belong the power to bind on earth that which shall be bound in heaven and to lose on earth that which shall be loosed in heaven to remit sin to say what shall be done and how it shall be done and on what occasions it shall be done and when the president of the church speaks anything as the mind and will of the lord it is just as binding upon us as if God spake personally to us. Those who are at all familiar with the teachings and literature of the Mormon Church need no proof of the necessity of absolute obedience to the priesthood on the part of adherents, or of the insistence upon this from the beginning to the present. As already indicated, denial of this principle was one of the chief offenses of those who were responsible for the Utah Schism it has been argued that we must passively and uninquiringly obey the priesthood because otherwise we could not build zion complained e l t harrison in an appeal to the people and the protest and such obedience appears to be required in all the relations of life in things spiritual and temporal some of us who are unacquainted with the refinements or modifications or qualifications to which such teachings may be subjected in their applications to individual cases may well be pardoned if we question whether a member of an organization which makes such unusual demands is or really can be in a position to act freely in determining what course shall be pursued and if he is not really free in this particular could he being so circumstanced be considered good material for our rights could he answer honestly and satisfactorily that question in our petition to which reference has already been made we are familiar with the fact that leaders of the lds organization have repeatedly declared that their followers are as free to act in all the affairs of life as are the votaries of any other faith or philosophy of life but when issues of the most vital concern having to do with time and eternity are made to hinge absolutely upon acceptance of this fundamental principle we are forced to confess that such assertions make an unwarranted and impossible demand upon our credulity another set of facts which cannot or ought not to be ignored in this study has to do with the matter of polygamy the writer appreciates the fact that by many this is regarded as a dead issue he is mindful of the further fact that a manifesto was issued by the president of the church in eighteen hundred and ninety which advised the people to refrain from the practice of this principle and that later this famous document was construed as prohibiting not only new marriages but also those who had previously entered this relation from living with their plural wives it is to be remembered too that the present head of the church recently declared with so much earnestness that he afterwards apologized for the manner in which he had spoken having been as he expressed himself gloriously mad that no man on earth had the power to perform plural marriages and we have excommunicated two patriarchs who have pretended to perform plural marriages all this and these for reasons that follow do not remove the subject beyond the purview of the mason or the lodge that may be seeking information as to the fitness of material to come into our fellowship it is conceded that this subject does not have the importance of the mason and citizen that it had when grand secretary deal sent out a circular in which he set forth the position of the grand lodge of utah with reference to the latter-day saints their teachings and practices but after all allowances have been made there still remain considerations that are pertinent to our purpose at all events such is the conviction of the writer he is not convinced that this subject is a dead issue for he recalls the fact that a president of the church the very mouthpiece of god as we have seen declared concerning this practice and doctrine It is one of the most vital parts of our religious faith. It emanated from God and cannot be legislated away. Take this from us, and you rob us of our hopes and associations in the resurrection, and hardly less pertinent is the fact that this principle, like the revelation which established it, still holds its place in the teachings, beliefs, and literature of the Mormon people. The uninitiated may experience some difficulty. Perhaps when they undertake to reconcile one set of facts with another set of facts, which appear to be at the opposite pole this is the situation it is known that the practice of polygamy has been abandoned according to repeated statements made by those who are in authority and that this principle is no longer taught by the church yet it is a matter of common knowledge that the present head of the organization is a polygamist as also was his immediate predecessor in that position and all who preceded him at least such was his status at the time of the smooth investigation when he was a fugitive from justice, on account of his marital relations. There are other leaders associated with the president of the church who are similarly situated. These men are the leaders of the thought and exemplars of the principles of the organization and are living their religion. This is referred to here, not in any spirit of criticism, but for the purpose of calling attention to the teaching value of such facts. Your actions speak so loud that I cannot hear what you say is an adage which is not without suggestiveness in this connection the influence of the first presidency and more particularly of the president of the church is greater than that of any other man or set of men how could it be otherwise in view of his alleged relationship to deity and of the great and unusual powers he exercises by virtue of that relationship it must follow that the words the actions the daily life of one vested with such singular prerogatives exert a tremendous influence in the direction of shaping opinion and belief of determining the attitude of multitudes of people towards the institutions and the laws of the land in fact of making the individual what he is for a man or for men so placed to take the position for any considerable length of time that a law with which they do not find themselves in accord is unconstitutional and therefore is to be ignored as was done for nearly two decades or to insist that the practice of polygamy is ordained of God, is ecclesiastical in its nature and government, and because of this, it is therefore outside of constitutional law, and so, being within the pale of the church, its free exercise cannot be prohibited. Or again, for the visigerant of God, to testify in the most conspicuous manner, though not of his own free will and accord, that he had been, and was then, living in known violation of the laws of his country his church and his god that he expected to continue so doing and that he was willing to take his chances with the laws of the state and for other leaders only a little less prominent than the president to testify to the same conditions in their marital relations for such a situation to develop and exist and to be taken as a sort of matter of course or even approved and commended by so large a body of people cannot be productive of results that are far from being reassuring how can it be otherwise than that such attitude toward law and such examples on the part of such influential men should have a powerful effect upon the young manhood and womanhood of the l d s organizations we are of the opinion that it is not desirable certainly it is not in accord with masonic ideals and teachings to subject young people to character forming influences Which must tend to make them indifferent to law. Many thoughtful craftsmen earnestly believe that these are times in which regard for law should be emphasized on all suitable occasions, and that the too general practice, in effect, of nullifying and repealing law by individual disregard of law instead of making use of the means provided by law is a proceeding dangerous beyond calculation, a positive, subtle menace to the very foundation of those institutions which are at once our boast and our fetish another angle of this phase of our subject should not be overlooked not only is the doctrine taught by example and that by the most influential men in the l d s organization but it appears in the literature and often in the instructions given the people the doctrine and covenants is one of the four standard works adapted by formal actions of this organization it is the word of god and is of equal authority with the bible the book of mormon and the pearl of great price sometimes LDS controversialists have strenuously objected when their opponents have quoted statements made by conference speakers in place of adhering strictly to these standard works of the church now as noted above the doctrines and covenants is authoritative and standard section or chapter one thirty two of this book records the revelation on plural marriage If it ever taught this principle, and there is no controversy on this score, it still teaches it. For the late president of the church, Joseph F. Smith, testified under oath that it had not been annulled or repealed, and so far as known to the writer, no action of this sort has ever been taken. It is still part and parcel of the authoritative teachings of the church, as also is the rather severe sentence which it pronounces upon those who fail to accept this teaching. In the material provided for study by the young people's organizations of the Church, considerable stress is laid upon the lives of Joseph and Hiram Smith, Brigham Young and others of the leading men in the history of this people, all of whom live their religion. These men are held up as heroic characters, whose words and example are presented for instruction and emulation sometimes speakers when addressing large numbers of this faith declare their adherence to the principle under consideration some years after the manifesto was issued an apostle declared that the principle of plural marriage is as true today as it ever was and asserted that those who prevent you from obeying are responsible to god for so doing b h roberts in a church periodical published for the guidance and instruction of young people members of the mutual improvement association has a long article in defence of this principle. Other illustrations of the matter under consideration could easily be assembled if they were deemed necessary, but enough has been said, it would seem, to show what is being done along this line. We do not undertake to reconcile the contradictions which must be apparent to every observant craftsman. We are simply calling attention to facts. As these pages are being written in the hope that they may prove to be helpful in a measure to investigating committees there is another point of view that should be presented here sometimes it is asserted with reference to one who has applied or is desirous of applying for the degrees he does not practice polygamy never has done so and though a member of the lds organization he never has accepted it even in principle why isn't he good material such a question would seem to call for an affirmative answer and other things being equal to leave little room for objection But even in such a case there are certain considerations which should have weight and it is not any one thing but all those matters which have to do with conduct and character which really help to place a man that should be laid on the scales there is we believe such a thing as for want of a better term group responsibility by this it is meant that a man can hardly cut himself off relieve himself of responsibility by declining to hold to one principle at the same time he claims the privileges and accepts the benefits accruing from membership in an organization of which that very principle is fundamental to illustrate the writer might claim affiliation with the i w w for example but strenuously insist that while a member of that organization and ready to aid in the promulgation of its principles and philosophy of life He does not now and never has believed in the use of dynamite for the destruction of life and property in order to gain the ends which this particular organization has in view. Could he justly be shrived of responsibility when the organization of which he is a member uses dynamite? Perhaps in the payment of dues and assessments which among other things were necessary to keep him in good standing in the organization, his money helped to buy the dynamite used in the destruction of life should his protest of disbelief in a principle outweigh the practical concrete assistance he gave to the organization which does hold to the principle he disclaims whether the analogy is close and satisfactory in all particulars or not there is a suggestion here which investigating committees should not ignore when arriving at a conclusion there is another objective and one that at first blush would seem to be conclusive that is sure to appear when the suggestion is made that one's belief is to be considered when passing upon the qualifications of an applicant the impression prevails quite generally that masonry does not assume the right to question a petitioner on the score that in effect he may believe what he pleases and if all right in other respects he may be received into our fellowship of course a moment's reflection must convince us that this is not the case we do claim and constantly exercise the right to demand that a man must believe certain things or his petition will not even be presented to the lodge. It must be evident too to the well-informed that the range of inquiry touching what must be accepted by applicants is not fixed by any so-called immutable landmark for the requirements in this respect vary in different jurisdictions. Further, one can hardly follow a candidate through the ceremonies of the several degrees without noting how often, by direct question and scarcely less direct implication, the matter of belief is involved. Some years ago, a prominent leader in the LDS organization, when taken to task by critics for his avowed belief in the principle under consideration, and he was living his religion and still is doing so, responded, Well, gentlemen, whose business is it? What are you going to do about it? We are not prepared to say that, under the circumstances, that was not a proper and sufficient answer. But here the situation is very different. Masonry has erected certain standards to which applicants must conform, does not pass upon qualifications, necessarily must pass upon character, and in order to judge character. It is needful to know somewhat of the material, as it were, that has gone into the making of character. Hence many questions are asked, or should be, if the information is not at hand, that do not appear in our petition. And so on occasion and when in doubt we make inquiries concerning the habits and practices of an applicant circumstances might arise which would lead us to satisfy ourselves whether or not the applicant is a dope fiend or booze-fighter or libertine whether he abuses his wife or neglects his children or defrauds his creditors or is wedded to the gaming-table and we do not hesitate to satisfy ourselves as to his physical condition whether he is crippled or defective in any respect or a subject to ailment or disease which might bring him to be a burden upon the lodge these intimate matters of health and character are not our business until application is made for admission to our fraternity then the candidate says in effect the bars are down ask any questions needful for i am desirous of meeting the conditions in order that i may be made a mason that one of the most powerful character shaping influences should be excluded from consideration would be absurd If it were required or even permitted, our right to make such inquiries, the necessity for them appear to be beyond question. In this connection, and as further emphasizing the importance that may be attached to a state of mind, not an overt act, to a belief as a determining factor in estimating character, the decision of a Salt Lake judge in the third district court is illuminating and suggestive. The matter came up on the petition of an alien to become a citizen of the United States. In framing the naturalization laws under the statute, certain requirements are set forth. Failure to satisfy any one of these conditions results in defeating application for citizenship. Among other declarations required, the petitioner must state under oath that he is not a polygamist or believer in the practice of polygamy, and further he must make it appear to the satisfaction of the court that he is attached to the principles of the Constitution of the United States in the case under consideration the applicant for citizenship took oath as required with reference to being a polygamist and his belief in the practice of polygamy at the hearing however he was interrogated with respect to fulfilment of conditions required for admission to citizenship the testimony showed with reference to belief in the practice of polygamy that the petitioner based his disbelief in the practice upon the conviction and upon no other ground that so long as they exist, the prohibitory rules of church and state should be obeyed. He did not disbelieve in it because of any objection to the practice itself. Apart from its relationship to ecclesiastical and legal prohibitions, he does believe in it now. He was willing to obey the law and to have it obeyed, and it was shown that he did not believe in, and was unsympathetic with, the forbidding canons of both church and state. The court held that one cannot honestly believe in a practice apart from the fact that it is against the law, and at the same time be honestly attached to the law forbidding it. And further that, since his testimony shows a lack of attachment to the law against polygamy, a law fundamental to our scheme of government, he has failed to fulfill that important condition requiring petitioners to show to the satisfaction of the court that they are attached to the principles of the Constitution. Admission to citizenship was therefore denied him. The point to which attention is specially directed in this incident is a significance attached to a belief as disclosing an unfavorable attitude of mind toward the laws of the land. Masonry, like citizenship, acquired through naturalization, is a privilege, not a right, and a privilege conditioned upon compliance with certain requirements. And those requirements are fixed by the written and unwritten laws of the fraternity. We pass now to another matter. Masonry directs the attention of its initiates to the Bible as God's inestimable gift to man as a rule and guide to his faith and practice. The Great Light in Anglo-Saxon Masonry occupies a prominent and well-known position in the ritual. The attitude of the LDS organization toward the Bible is not without its significance for us. The Bible is accepted as the Word of God, so far as translated correctly. The Book of Mormon is equally the word of God, as also are the Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price. These are the standard books of the Mormon church. In this particular, of course, there could be no criticism for a book of the law on the altar meets the requirements. But as we understand the matter, a fundamental teaching of the church is what may be termed the principle of a continuous or immediate revelation. By this is meant that the president of the church Who, as we have seen is the very mouthpiece of god may at any time substitute something better than any one of the four books named or than all of them together and such pronouncement would be the very word of god binding alike upon all the adherents of that faith the whole of them that is the four books listed above are not all we need the lord has his mouthpiece to say what shall be done and how it shall be done and on what occasion it shall be done the authorities of the church are the living oracles of god and they are worth more to the l d s than all the bibles all the books of mormon and all the books of doctrine and covenants that are written if we could have but one of them give me the living oracles of the priesthood for my guidance when compared with the living oracles declared brigham young those books are nothing to me those books do not convey the word of god direct to us now as do the words of the prophet or a man bearing the holy priesthood in our day and generation. I would rather have the living oracles than all the writings in the books. These words quoted by President Woodruff were spoken in the presence of Joseph Smith, who immediately arose and said, Brother Brigham has told you the word of the Lord, and he has told you the truth. We do not call attention to these things by way of criticism. These teachings concerning the Bible, in relation to the living oracles, are for those who can and who care to accept them but we do suggest that such views concern us when they are held by those who would apply to our lodges for the degrees and who because of the source whence such principles emanate might feel moved at any time to substitute some man's dictum for the great light in the affairs of life under these circumstances we submit that the word that might be declared by the living oracles might not accord in any particular or respect with the fundamentals of Masonry. And this might very probably be the case inasmuch as the LDS organization is opposed to all secret societies except its own. One other matter is worthy of passing notice, at least in this connection. This relates itself to deity. Masonry requires of its initiates an avowal of belief in God. It does not undertake to say what one's conception of God shall be so that in this particular a member of the LDS organization can meet the requirements. But this fact does not preclude a consideration of conceptions so fundamental in life and character as one's apprehension of deity. Here also is disclaimed any attempt or thought of criticism. The purpose is simply to get as much light as possible upon the influences and forces and beliefs which work together in the great task of shaping character. Latter-day saints are taught and we assume believe in a plurality of gods. The head god organized the heavens. In the beginning the heads of the gods organized the heavens and the earth. In the beginning the bible shows there is a plurality of gods beyond the power of refutation. The head of the gods appointed one god for us. The deity of the LDS is an exalted man. He has parts and passions like men, including the procreative power, which he exercises, having with him as he sits enthroned in yonder heavens, a female deity. Whatever allowance may be made in the matter of leaving every man at liberty, to conceive God as he may, this much may be said. Such a materialistic idea of God differs so widely from that held by masons generally, but more particularly in this country, that the question might well arise whether those holding it would fit into the masonic institution. The peace and harmony of a lodge is of prime importance. Reference has been made to the fact that the LDS organization is opposed to secret societies, and the reason for this must be clear to every well-informed, intelligent latter-day saint. Masonry, according to the late President Joseph F. Smith, is an institution of the evil one, as is abundantly shown by many passages in the four standard books of the church. Now this being true, it must follow that a member of that organization would join the fraternity in the face of these facts would act in direct opposition to the positive declarations of church leaders and no less explicit injunctions of the four standard works of the church which he has accepted as the very word of his god this being true such a person would necessarily be a bad mormon and masons may be excused for seriously doubting if a bad mormon can make a good mason now briefly to summarize the principal matters presented in the foregoing pages so that there may be seen at a glance some of the reasons which have weight with Utah Masons today. 1. Historical. Attitude of the Nauwoo Masons towards Masonic customs and law. 2. Clandestinism. Temple ceremonies and use of language and symbols. 3. Priesthood. Unlimited power of and right to direct and dictate in all things temporal and spiritual, the mouthpiece of God. 4. Polygamy. This is taught, a. In original revelations, That has not been annulled or repealed nor can it be b in positive declarations of belief in it by leaders and prominent teachers c in the literature of the organization and d by the example of the leaders who live their religion five attitude toward law enforcement of law against polygamy was persecution and is still so held and taught six petition inability of applicant honestly to answer one question in petition 7. Great Light. Substitution of Living Oracles. Priesthood for the Bible. 8. Deity. Conception of male and female deity out of harmony with that of Anglo-Saxon masonry. 9. Membership prohibited. LDS organization holds masonry to be of the evil one, and is opposed to members having any connection herewith. End of chapter 4. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama. End of Mormonism and Masonry by Samuel Goodwin